Let me read the scriptures today. And it's from 1 Peter, verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Love each other with a warm love that comes from the heart. After all, you have purified yourself by obeying the truth. As a result, you have a sincere love for each other. You have been born again, not from a seed that can be destroyed, but through God's everlasting word that can't be destroyed. That's why scripture says, all people are like grass and all their beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass, the grass dries up and the flowers, the flower drops off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. This word is the good news that was told to you. So get rid of every kind of evil, every kind of deception, hypocrisy, jealousy, and every kind of slander. Desire God's pure word as newborn babies desire milk. Then you will grow in your salvation. Certainly you have tasted that the Lord is good. You are coming to Christ, the living stone, who was rejected by humans, but was chosen as precious by God. You come to Him as living stones, a spiritual house that is being built into a holy priesthood. So offer spiritual sacrifices that God accepts through Jesus Christ. That is why Scripture says, I am laying a chosen and precious cornerstone in Zion, and the person who believes in Him will never be ashamed. This honor belongs to those who believe, but to those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected just became the cornerstone, a stone that people trip over, a large rock that people find offensive, that people trip over the word because they refuse to believe it. Therefore, this is how they ended up. However, you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people who belong to God. You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not God's people, but now you are. Once you were not shown mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles once again, this time to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. And Lord willing, it looks like we'll finish chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, God's precision-built temple. God's precision-built temple. Henry fancied himself as an expert on cults. But many people just thought of him as a know-it-all. It seemed that every conversation with him would end up on his favorite theme. And he would pressure the leadership to teach more often on the danger of cults. People often wondered, why would God put this guy in their church? Olivia tended toward legalism. She had expectations for other people and let them know about it. And as typically goes, they usually didn't live up to those. And so she would make people feel less than. Why would God put her in their church? Why would God put such difficult people in his church? Well, let me let you in on a little secret. 
every one of us is that difficult person to someone, right? You may not have realized that, but you need to. We all have rough edges, misplaced zeal. We might be consumed with our own pet ideas. We have our own expectations for others and as to what they ought to be, how they ought to treat us, and so forth. And the list goes on and on. It, those may not be what are the rough edges on you, but you have them. And if, if you're not sure of that, you can ask anyone else, and we'd be glad to tell you. We all have those. Now, I want us to picture our church membership as a building that's made of stones. And so, I have a slide here with a a picture on it that I want you to to think about for a minute. And you see the picture, this is an ancient building, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit. But you notice the stones that are used to make up that wall. It's not like a wall you would see built today where every brick or stone is pretty much the same shape, or you might be used to seeing things with mortar in between. And you might notice that every stone in here is a different shape, different size, um, but they're all, they all fit perfectly. And if you notice the, the corner there, and that isn't a tie-in to the cornerstone we're going to get to, but just the corner, notice how straight and perfect that is. Somebody had to work hard to make all of those different stones fit so that you have those nice, perfect, straight corners. We are those stones. Have you realized that God uses great care in placing each stone exactly where it needs to fit? And have you also realized that because none of those stones will fit perfectly right off the bat? Those stones have to be shaped and smoothed so that they fit in perfectly next to those around them. What Paul is doing here in Ephesians 2, in the last part of the chapter, is developing our understanding of the church. And he's talking now about how that church is constructed out of living stones. Each believer is a living stone, as Avery just read to us from First Peter. And each local church is a tiny picture of the universal church, that, that church with a, a capital C, if you will, that, that God is building, that one people of God we've been talking about. And, and you can read about it in the Revelation and... He's building this one people of God, and and our church is a tiny picture of that church. And we will, as we're going to see, contribute to uh, the building of that that church, which we're going to see is will be God's dwelling place through all eternity. What we're studying here in verses 19 to 22 of Ephesians 2, we're working with this point. 
believers are now the one people of God in a relationship with Him that is marked with an intimacy that's greater, even closer than a family bond. You see, and, and I want us to see that it, we're not like other religions and, and other, even some Christian groups out there, that they, their picture of God is He's off out there somewhere, and we're over here. And even in heaven, we, you know, your, your picture of God and, and us in heaven might be that, you know, He's up high and exalted on that throne, and we're way back here somewhere. And what Paul is trying to show us is something that is far closer in the relationship, far more intimate in the relationship than we often will picture it. And that's what we hope to come away with today, is an understanding finally of really how close God wants to live with us. And that will be for all eternity. So, we're, he's been talking about how believing Jews and believing Gentiles are brought together into that one church. They're joined into the one people of God. And so as we, we look at the outline we're working with now, last week we covered the first two points. So if we go ahead and go forward, thank you. Um, this passage, 19 to 22, falls into these three parts. We have first a new association. We're citizens of God's kingdom. And so we used to be citizens of the kingdom of the world. Now we're citizens of God's kingdom. Okay, So you can see how that obviously is, is bringing us closer. But as I had said, you know, like my neighbors are citizens of the U.S., but they're not as close as my family is. And that's the next picture that Paul gives us here. So we've got these three pictures, and it's just really three different ways to look at the church from three different angles. So first is the citizenship in God's kingdom. Then we have a new relationship. We're members of God's household. Members of God's household. And so that is even closer. And as we move through these three pictures that he gives us of the church, it becomes more, the relationship becomes more and more intimate. It's not that, you know, one is a better picture than the other. He's just looking at it from different perspectives because you can draw out different truths from that to help us better understand the whole. Because, you know, when you talk about spiritual things, it's hard. There, there, there's, there's never one illustration that fits perfectly. Think about when we try to illustrate the Trinity. We get into trouble real fast, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, we have to be really careful with that. You can't say, well, the Trinity is just, you know, God is, you know, he's father and he's a son and he's, you know, like a, a, a husband or something using that. No, you, you slipped off into heresy at that point, you know, or, you know, like he's, you know, ice or, ga you know, uh, steam or water. Okay, again, you've slipped off into a heresy. So we have to be real careful. Illustrations, sometimes they're bad, like the ones I just gave you. But even the good ones only go so far. And we have to be careful with them. And so he's using three different perspectives here to help us learn more about this deep spiritual truth that we are God's people. What does that mean? We're not just those who have this distant relationship with God as so many religions have with their God. 
And some people, you know, think deism, for example, you know, that, okay, they might say that they subscribe to, they believe in the God of the Bible, at least to a point. But they're nowhere close because it, he, God is not like that. He's not this distant God. And so what we find, it gets even more uh, intimate. So citizens to members of a family. And now what we're going to look further into, we just started this last time. We have a new purpose, a new association, a new relationship, and a new purpose. What is that purpose? To serve as God's dwelling place. To be His temple. And you see how that gets even more intimate. Okay. So... He's now shifting to this third image, that of God's temple. And and so, let's look at the passage again. And then we're going to dive in a little further into looking at that temple. So, second, or Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. There's that first one. And are of God's household. There's the second one. And then the rest is going to be this third picture. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God, in the Spirit. And so in his commentary, Dr. Honer points out that when we are talking about this temple, Paul gives us three aspects of that temple. And and so we're going to... And I'm just... I couldn't do better. I tried to come up with my own and I couldn't do any better than that. So I'll just give him credit for it and take it. So... We're going to look first at the temple's foundation, then its formation, and then its function. Okay? So we're going to walk through those. First... The foundation of the church is Jesus along with his apostles and prophets. Verse 20. The foundation of the church is Jesus with his apostles and prophets. Again, verse 20. And and remember now, even though he doesn't say temple right off the bat, he's talking in verses 20 to 22 about the temple, the third illustration. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so, first, before we get into what the cornerstone is, we need to recognize what's going on here is that the the temple, the building he's talking about, is made up of people, persons. The first, the cornerstone, is Jesus, a person. The rest of the foundation is filled out by New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. Again, persons. Now, a big part of what they contributed is the Word of God, both Jesus and the apostles and prophets. And, and they left us with that because those are foundation documents, if you will, for, uh, for the church. And those are what we go by. But the church is built of people. And then, of course, we'll, we'll see when we get uh, toward the end is that believers form the rest of the building, all persons. So before... Construction can begin even when we're talking about the foundation. In that day, the way they would build uh, buildings was to set a cornerstone. It had to be set first. That was the very first thing you did as you're starting to construct the building. It was the first stone laid. Placed at one corner, it was a guide 
for laying the rest of the foundation. So when you have that cornerstone, and the, and the picture that's on there now is there, you can't really see a cornerstone, but you can get the idea. Uh, those are, in, in a sense, cornerstones, but they're not the cornerstone. They'd always be the one at the bottom at one corner, but they would set that one in place, and they would exactly, okay, we're going to want the building to face this way, so we're going to put the cornerstone here, and, it's, and, and it now basically tells the rest of the workers this is exactly the direction the building's going to be built in and how to keep it plumb and square and everything else. And that cornerstone would guide everything. Okay, so they would set it first. It also was part of the foundation which would support the structure. But the the cornerstone would give unity to the building because everything had to tie into it, if you will, in some way. It had to be directly related to to that cornerstone. And so to build the church, the apostles and prophets had to align with Jesus. So if they were going to do the work of of laying that foundation and getting the, the building of the church started, the construction started, they had to align everything to that cornerstone. So God in, in His Son Jesus laid the cornerstone. He laid it exactly the way He wanted the, the building to be built. And so Jesus, the cornerstone, was laid. And then the, the apostles and prophets, New Testament prophets, come along and, and keeping in mind being not really centered on, but focused on that cornerstone. They built out the rest of the foundation. But they had to align with him. The the apostles didn't get to, you know, well, you know, I think if we're going to have this thing called a church, what we ought to do is this. You know, even though Jesus said this, we've got some better ideas. And that, that is not at all what they were allowed to do. They, Jesus told them exactly, this is how I want it built. And they aligned everything to him. In Isaiah 28.16, Isaiah calls it a stone of testing. Some translations will have it a tested stone. Probably both ideas are there. Uh, It's a test. Jesus is a tested stone, if you will, but he's also a stone of testing because that's what a cornerstone did. It was how you would be able to test to see... Is the building square? Is it plumb? Are the walls plumb? You you would start out there at that cornerstone and measure everything off of that and test everything off of that. And so every part of the church must conform to Jesus, the cornerstone. And so as cornerstone, he sets the standard for this new building. So whatever standards were to follow... It has to follow Jesus. We always have to go back to Jesus. That's what we do. And that's why, you know, the New Testament is laid out the way it is. What, how do we start off the New Testament? Well, we have the four Gospels, right? And then what do we have right after the four Gospels? And we have the, the book of Acts, which is where the, the church is starting to be constructed, if you will. And so we see how the Holy Spirit was working through the apostles to lay that foundation and begin building the church. But we always have to go back to Jesus. He also determines our mission. And throughout the, the ages, this is something very common. It's so easy for us to lose our mission or, or to lose Jesus' mission. And and so, you know, we, you know, pastors, theologians, uh, church planters, whoever it might be, they sit around and they think about, okay, you know, well, we really need to revitalize our church, so, so how do we do that? 
Okay, well, this could be a good thing to do to revitalize your church, which you do. It, you know, they sometimes will think, and, and we get, I know Kevin and I, we get stuff, you know, all the time in the mail and stuff that, you know, we've, we've got all the great ideas to tell you how to do your church and how to build a big church and, you know, or we can, you know, come and survey your neighborhood and then tell you how you ought to do church and that sort of thing. And never do you find them saying, well, we want to help you go back to Jesus and see what was his mission for the church. And the apostles who passed that on. Because that is what we must do no matter what. He established, determines our mission. By Him we can measure our unity. And you know, it would be so easy to have kind of a pseudo-unity. But we have to go back to Jesus and say, okay... If we look at Him, are we really unified? We have to measure it by Him. He's going to be the source of growth for the church. We don't look for other sources of growth. And so, to pull it all together, our standard, our mission, our unity, our growth are all founded upon Jesus and His work. And we always go back to Jesus. That's one of the reasons that we uh, feel like it's important for us to have the Lord's table each Sunday. Because it just keeps bringing us back to Jesus. Even though that's what we do in the Word, that's what we do in our worship, our singing, is we're we're focusing on Jesus. But we, we finish off in a way... Just one more time, just, you know, one more pass. This is about Jesus. And that is what we, everything is built around Him. He is indeed the cornerstone. Well, where did that idea of cornerstone come from? Well, the New Testament idea was taken from the Old Testament and several Old Testament passages. We're going to take a look at a few of those. So, if you'd like to turn back to Psalm 118, it's one of the passages. Psalm 118 In verse 22, and what the psalmist here is talking about is this whole idea of salvation, as we find in in verse 21, for example, and then leading into, after talking about God is his salvation, he says in Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So there's one of the passages about the cornerstone, and of course this is speaking prophetically of Jesus, the one who would be the cornerstone. In Matthew 21, 42, Jesus quoted this and said that that was talking about me. That's that's how we know. We're not guessing here. Jesus told us that's what this passage was talking about. And then turn over to Acts, so all the way a long ways back to the right, um, Acts chapter 4, and we're going to see what Paul said. So, or Peter, when Peter was on trial before the leaders, the religious leaders, he was pointing out that this Jesus that they were preaching, and, and the leaders were upset about them preaching Jesus because they thought they'd gotten rid of him by killing him. But here... These guys are preaching Jesus. And so, Acts chapter 4, verse 8, here on trial, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, you remember he had healed that lame fellow uh, as he was coming into the temple, 
as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, and now talking about Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so, here, Peter comes along and says, yes, what the Old Testament is talking about with this cornerstone is the Lord Jesus. And it is about salvation, which is what Psalm 118 was about. Now, it was also, in, in these, these passages all overlap with one another, uh, Isaiah chapter 8. So, if you want to, uh, a little bit of a Bible drill here, go back to Isaiah 8. And we're going to look at two passages in Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah 8, verse 14. And, and this is a passage that that I love um, for for two reasons. One, the verses that will lead into verse fourteen about the uh, Jesus as the stone of stumbling, um, and also for that, what he's doing here is so the Lord is encouraging uh, Isaiah and others who, as they're preaching. Pointing people to God, people are saying, oh, it's a conspiracy. And they're trying to shut them up by saying it's a conspiracy. And so the Lord says to him in verse 12, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. So the Lord, remember we talked about this in the Fear of the Lord study. So don't be afraid of those people or what they say or what they might do. Don't be in dread of that. Why? Verse 13. It is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, whom you should regard as holy. And these beautiful words, which they sound hard, but if you think about them, they're really beautiful. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread, then he shall become a sanctuary. So he's saying, if you fear the Lord and not man, the Lord will be your sanctuary. And that's beautiful. Now, he knows that not everybody's going to believe that. And so the Lord continues. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. They will fall and be broken. So what Isaiah is telling us there in verse 18 or 814 is that Jesus is going to be a stone that for those who believe in him, they will find salvation. But for the others, they're going to stumble over him. And you think about the religious leaders and so many of the Jews in um, Jesus' day, how they truly did stumble over him. They, they saw him and they're like, this can't be the Messiah because we have our expectations of what Messiah is going to be like. And he's not that. They stumbled over him. Now, one more, Isaiah 28. And we'll look at verse... Uh, 
16. developing a little bit more this idea of the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore says the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone or a stone of testing, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. That's most likely the passage Paul is thinking about specifically. This whole idea of this this stone that's firmly placed, this cornerstone that sets the foundation. Okay. Now, Peter in First Peter two, and you can, if you want to, turn with me there. First Peter two, that'll be the, the last one I think we'll turn to. First uh, Peter two. <clears throat> He quotes from all three of those. He kind of takes a mix of them. And, of course, like I said, they all overlap to some extent but because they're talking about the same thing. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, we read, Avery read this for us, and I'll just read part of it just to remind us. First Peter 2, 4. And coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone. And that's the idea I was talking about, that the building's made of people. Jesus is a living stone, Right? Coming to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, again, people, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed." This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Believers are those living stones. And that's what Paul, even though he didn't use that particular word, he's using the same ideas there. We are those living stones that God is using to build his house, his temple. We're a spiritual house. We're a holy priesthood. We offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Okay, so back in Ephesians 2. Verse 21. As he goes on, in whom, that is in Jesus, and, and again, you, you, we keep finding this, in him, in him, in him. He says that in whom, in the Lord, right? But it's all about Jesus. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So our second point is this, the formation, talked about the foundation, cornerstone, Jesus, and then the apostles and prophets, fill out the foundation. Now we're on the formation of the church. The formation of the church is the careful fitting of all believers into the whole. The fitting of all believers into the whole. This is going to be one whole structure. There's not going to be two churches, two peoples of God. There's one people of God. There's one whole building, as he calls it here. And it's being built in the the sphere of Christ. It's all happening in Christ. So this verb, uh, fitted together, being fitted together, uh, is one word in Greek, and Paul coined that word and made it up. Well, what he did is he took a word that meant, a verb that meant 
to fit or um, place things, join things in construction. So when you're doing the work of construction and you're fitting things. And then he adds a preposition because he wants to draw out this idea of fitting them together. It's not just, don't think in terms of just laying that one stone, but it's that that stone has to fit next to this stone and this one and this one and then the ones that are to come after it all together. And so he adds a preposition for together to the front of it and he makes a new word meaning to fit together or to join together. And he's trying to emphasize that idea of, the, of together. Great skill and care was used to place each individual stone. And so God joins and fits believers together with skill and care. That's the point he's trying to make, this, this spiritual point or theological point. God joins and fits believers together with skill and care, keeping the final structure's purpose in view, which is going to come in the next verse. You see, God's not just haphazardly, you know, let me just see how this turns out and we'll decide what it's going to be later. It's not at all. He, he knows exactly what he wants it to be, what the finished product is going to be like. And, and so as he places each stone, and that's important, why are you placed in his church? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, why has he placed you in his church? Well, because you contribute to that final product. You see, he's got that in view. And so that's why he puts so much skill and care into this. So in ancient times, builders would often build walls and buildings without mortar. And it was a very intricate process. There was that careful fitting stones together. You might have to cut them. You might have to smooth them and shape them in order to, to get them to fit. And if that one doesn't fit, you might shape it, but you might shape the ones next to it as well. And again, uh, Dr. Honer sums it up this way. He says, if ancient masons used an elaborate process to fit the stones together, and that's the picture Paul's drawing upon, one can be assured that God, even more, by His grace, is carefully fitting together the individuals who are a part of His building. His desire is to bring inner unity in order that corporate growth can occur. So, no one of us is placed haphazardly into uh, a local church, and especially the universal church. We're not just kind of tossed in there. Like, yeah, I'll figure out where to put that later. Not at all. God doesn't work that way. It's not by accident that each of us is placed closely to others. And I know that that often is hard. You know, I, I gave you, you know, Henry and Olivia, which is really you and me, right? The story may be different, but, you know, we're all that difficult person. But when you think about, we, we never think that, right? It's always, well, the person, Lord, that you put me here with. And we wonder why. You know, why do they have such rough edges? Well, it's probably because I've got rough edges that need to be rubbed off. And so those rough edges rubbing together and God uses that to smooth both of us, right? He uses great skill and care in placing each of us into the body as well as how we're going to interact with each other. You know, and just as, you know, like Henry, uh, and, and these are people I've known over 30 years ago, so it's not any of you. But, you know, sometimes some of these people, they're just, they're just too much. 
Like, why, Lord, would you put them in our church? I might not be able to answer that. You might not be able to answer that. But God can. He knows what He's doing. He is building and shaping throughout all of that. See, He factors in our spiritual gifts, which He gives us, our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses. And He carefully shapes us along with those around us that, so that we all fit in well. And so again, with the picture on the screen, you, know, you, you see that, I mean, today, I don't think you would ever see anyone build a wall like that. You know, for one, it, that, that's a lot of work. You know, for it to come out with that nice, you know, perfect corner, you know, putting all that in together. You can see there's flat stones and more square and round ones and all kinds of crazy things. It's just, to us, it looks crazy, but they, that's, they would just get a lot of rocks and, okay, we're going to start working and start fitting things together. And there's some that are not even as pretty as that, you know, to where, you know, you've got, you know, none of them are, are straight or flat or round. They're just, you know, this kind of crazy conglomerate in the way that they're built. And so that's how they built walls. And so God takes each of us, and in reality we wouldn't fit anywhere, but what the Lord does is He shapes us, and He places us in the structure of His church. And, and as I said again, and so if it, well, it didn't quite fit here, well, maybe you need a little more shaping, or maybe this person needs a little bit more shaping and smoothing and cutting and whatever, Right? That's how he builds his church. Now, he talks about growing here. He's talking about corporate growth, not individual personal growth. Now, other passages talk about that. He's not talking about individual growth here. He's talking about corporate. Us as a church. This is how we grow. And then, of course, that, that whole universal church, how it grows. And the staggering truth here is what this building is becoming. So we said in previous lessons that we are God's friends. And then we saw that we are citizens of His kingdom. We are members of His family. And now we see we are God's temple. That's staggering to think that we are God's temple. And there's two words, uh, main words for temple in the New Testament. Uh, the first one, Hieron, refers to the entire temple structure. And so you can see it on the left there, where you've got the, the, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and all the different courts. Okay, that whole was called the temple. And they, when they used, when they talked about that, they would use the word Hieron. Okay, <clears throat> there's another word, the one that's actually used in our passage, Naos. It refers to the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. And that's really the idea is the Holy of Holies. See, what Naas is talking about is the specific place where God dwells. So when, we, when you look at the one on the left, the Israelites knew that, you know, when, when God did come down in that pillar of cloud and all, he was not out there in those courts. Otherwise, everybody would be dead, right, back then. And so they knew that, okay, we can go into the courts and, you know, each of us can only go so, you know, so far, but no one except the high priest once a year got to go all the way into the holy place. And when Paul's using this term naos here for temple, what he's saying is that when he's what he's building is not this big structure with all of its courts. He's building that holy of holies. And that's us. And that's the staggering truth. 
He's building us to be the holy of holies for this eternal temple. The specific place where God dwells. And therefore, you know, I said back in those days, if you were to just go waltzing right into the Holy of Holies, you'd die. If the high priest wasn't properly prepared, especially in his heart, he would die. So we too must be holy. We are consecrated. We're set apart for God's use. The church is for God's use. The church isn't here for you know, all these other different ways that we sometimes might think. You know, it's not a social club and all this. No, this is for God's use. It is holy. And it is holy because we are in the Lord. We are being made holy, a holy temple in the Lord. Now, finally, the function of the church is to serve as God's dwelling place. Verse 22, the function of the church is to serve as God's dwelling place. So that's what Paul has been building toward. Verse 22, he says, In whom, again Jesus, in Jesus you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so when he says you also, he's there again. Remember, this whole thing has been uh, mind-boggling for those early Christians. Because Jews and Gentiles, remember, they, they, they were kept apart. And so what Paul has been telling us in the second half of Ephesians is that now God has brought them together. He has reconciled them first to God, and now together he's reconciled them. Okay, so they're like, okay, uh, that's huge. going to take me a little while to, to let that one sink in. And Paul says, yeah, wait, I've got one even bigger. You Gentiles who weren't even allowed in the closer, into the closer courts of the temple... They're now being made into the Holy of Holies. You see, and so that's how these things are just so staggering for them. And it, it ought to be for us too. We ought to meditate on what these things mean for us. That we, as believers in Jesus Christ, are being made into, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're being made into that Holy of Holies where God dwells. So even Gentiles are being built together with all the saints of all the ages. Each believer is a living stone that's used to build God's temple, His church. Now he uses a different verb here for the words being built together. And this just looks at it a little differently. Usually this word is used when they're putting uh, big stones in place, really large stones. And the idea of it is that as those are being placed, you, you see real quickly the building rising. Okay, So it's just a different way of looking at it. So he's saying we can see here as each local church is, is growing, we're able to see a little bit of the picture of what's happening in heaven as God is building that one people of God, that eternal temple. So you get, you can see the process that progress is being made. So what's the function of this temple? As we said, it's a very significant function. It's God's dwelling place. And he's not talking here about, like in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, where we know that each believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So that's that's one truth. The Holy Spirit lives in each believer. That's not what Paul's thinking about here. He's thinking of 1 Corinthians 3, for example, where he's talking about there, the local church, is the dwelling of the Spirit. So 
even that local, our local church, the Holy Spirit, is here among us, dwelling among us, and in us as a church. But again, remember, we're just a small picture of what God is building ultimately. So as He's building His church here and throughout all the, the godly, uh, Bible-oriented churches around the world, throughout the ages... We see him building, 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 but then all of those are contributing to that one building. And, you know, John takes an even different perspective, but there's some overlap. The New Jerusalem, you know, what's the foundation? The apostles, right? Now, he talks about it a little differently, but there's again another picture of that building that God is constructing. And it is made up of us. And the idea here of dwelling is a, a permanent dwelling. He indwells us by His Holy Spirit, as He says here, in the person of His Spirit. But He's looking forward to the day when all the believers from all of the ages are, are final, finally put together in that structure, if you will, and God will dwell in it. It will be like one big holy of holies. And God plans to live there. It's not... And, you know, we think of the new heavens and new earth. And you might your mind might go to, well, okay, God's going to stay up there in heaven. And He's going to send us down to earth. And it's like, okay, y'all are too much trouble, so you, you go down there. Not at all. I don't know exactly how all that... Because it, John talks about how, you know, the... The New Jerusalem comes down to the earth, so there's a merging of the heavens and the earth together. We are the people of God. We are, are His temple. And exactly, they're using pictures to try to describe that for us. And one day we'll get to see it with our own eyes and experience it ourselves. But God is in the process of building His permanent dwelling. And that's us. So he's in the process of fitting each of us into his church, carefully smoothing and shaping each of us so that we all fit together. He's building for himself an eternal dwelling place that's made up of all the believers throughout all the ages, going all the way back to Abel, as in uh, Hebrews 11. And I want to leave us with this. God desires to live that close to us, to His people. He desires to live that close to us. Do you? Do you want to live? Do you desire to live that close to not only God, but His people? Because that's what He's trying to get at. Because He's going to be building this whole idea of unity, right? And how the church is going to... How is the church to work? He's going to be developing that throughout Ephesians. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, again, we keep our focus on Jesus. And throughout that passage, he keeps saying, in Him, in whom, in the Lord, different ways of saying, in Jesus. Because Jesus is the key to God's eternal dwelling. And, and that's amazing if you think back because you had pre-Israel saints, you know, Abel and Abraham and, you know, Isaac and Sarah, 
Then you have all of the godly Jews that lived during the Israel's history. Now you have the church, where it's Jews and Gentiles, and you take all of that together. And they're being built into this, but the key to all of it is Jesus. He is the key. God was planning that all along. Jesus wasn't an afterthought. That was the whole plan. And that building could only be built if Jesus did what he did on the cross. When he died in our place, he died in Abraham's place, in Abel's place. He died in Moses' place, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and and all of the, you know, the Ruth and, and Naomi and... It's because of what he did that this building can be built. It's because of what Jesus did that God can live close to us for all eternity. I mean, that, that's just an amazing. You know, think back to those days and how fantastic it was in, when Israel came out of Egypt and they, they're camped now around the, the new tabernacle. And then God comes down in that cloud. You know, fire by night and cloud by day. And he comes down and he he's, he then dwells in that holy of holies. And I don't know if it will look kind of like that or not, but the idea is still there. That in the eternal state, one of the, the tremendous things that's going to happen in some way is that when this building is finally finished, when the last believer has been saved and they're now with the Lord... That building will be finished and God will dwell in it. You know, and in John, with his slightly different way of looking at things, he says there's, there's not going to be a temple because the Lord and the Lamb are going to be the temple. We're going to be the holy place around that. And God's going to be right in the midst of us. And what an incredible sight that will be to know. However, it's really going to look and all, you know, we don't know. It's based that their pictures, Paul's and John's pictures, are they're, they're good. But that'll be amazing. And for all eternity, you know, we'll, we'll all just always scratch our head. I can't believe God's living in the midst of us. And praise the Lord, He is. He loved us that much to send His Son to die for us so that He could live with us. And that's what we focus on here at the table. Jesus is the key to it all.